Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along. It's another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. I am James Butler, the Cricket Badger, and got a very special guest on this show today. He's somebody, I don't know if he actually knows this, but I, I follow him on LinkedIn and various other things, and uh, somebody I've wanted to get on the podcast for some time. And it's uh, former England, Gloucestershire, Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, spin bowler, Jeremy Snape. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Hi James, great to be here. I, I have a very big interest in sort, sort of sports psychology. You've taken it to a different level to me. I'm very, when I'm talking on the podcast, I'm very much amateur psychologist, imagining what it might be like for various people and stuff like that. But you've, you've gone a bit further than that. You've got your MA in sports psychology and, uh, well, tell me a little bit about where that's taken you. Yeah, it's, it was always a fascination, I guess, you know, playing 19 years as a cricketer, you get some highs and, and lots of lows, actually, probably way more lows than highs, certainly in my career. But, you know, the difference for me between my best and worst days was often in my head, yet it was the uh, element of the game that no no one seemed to be coaching or talking about. So we spent thousands and thousands of hours hitting balls and catching balls and bowling at cones and all the sort of traditional stuff. But, you know, on the big day, it often came down to our mindset, whether we succeeded or not. So I became really fascinated about what that was. And it just seemed like a massive opportunity to me to try and understand it, firstly, for myself at the back end of my own career, and then to be able to go and build a second career in coaching and, and you know, psychology and working with sport and business. So the master's degree was a a real challenge actually at the time. I mean, obviously I hadn't studied for 15 years or so from the first degree that I did and then playing cricket for, you know, around the world and, and full on for that period, the studies definitely took a backseat. So the first module around advanced research methods and statistics was a bit of an eye opener. <laughs> I think I almost wanted to finish it after day one, to be honest, the first lecture, but I stuck with it and I found it fascinating, you know, just having some research frameworks to be able to 
almost hang all the stories and experiences that I'd had and I knew that they were going to be valuable, you know, going forward and being able to blend both my own experiences and, and the theory then that gave me a bit of a structure to how our brain works, you know, great sort of leadership uh, strategies, how people handle pressure and how to build strong teams. So yeah, fascinating experience and that really helped me with that transition into a second career, as you mentioned. As I say, I mean, on, on this podcast, we've often um, talked about um, psychology, either in passing or um, I've had um, sports psychologists on on before but from my as I say amateur kind of standpoint I always imagine that once you get to a certain level in sport there's not a huge amount in talent between people it's who takes their opportunities it's who actually um, lives up to the challenge isn't it really and the majority of that is in the head isn't it well I think that's one of the challenges we see lots of parents dropping their kids off at whether it's football academies or under 12s, under 13s, cricket camps and and thinking, oh, they've made it, you know, because they've been recognised at that age group. And all we've got to do is keep feeding them, you know, healthy snacks and and they'll end up like Lionel Messi or or Freddie Flintoff. And and that's just not the case, to be honest. I mean, there's much more about the long path, the long and sort of steep path to mastery, which is all about can you play, you know, in different positions? Can you work with different coaches? Can you recover from injuries and go through all the rehabilitation and the physiotherapy that you need to? Can you try and be successful on different days? You know, we often hear that talented people are great on their day, but a coach and a team don't need somebody to be good four or five times a year. They need them to be good, you know, 60, 70% of the time. So it's about adapting to different conditions. And many of those challenges are psychological rather than, as you say, our hand-eye coordination or our natural intelligence. So that tenacity is almost the new talent, I think. And we're starting to celebrate how people recover from setbacks, how they navigate uncertainty, how they take calculated risks, but probably more than anything, how quickly they can learn. I think all coaches in business and sport, all leaders are looking for coachable people that can learn very quickly. And those are the kind of you know things we look for because the natural talent and natural ability is almost like your passport in or your ticket to the game. And you know the rest of it is down to your mindset and how quickly you can adapt and learn. In terms of your role as a, as a sports psychologist and talking to people who are obviously trying to get the best out of themselves, does it help that you've played the game or can anybody perform that role? Well, it's it's an interesting question. I think for me, you know, having played for 19 years and, and good and bad, and I think that's really important in coaching. I've, I've you know, played under some coaches that were absolutely brilliant themselves. And it's almost like they were so naturally able that they they never went through any bad patches or struggles. So they, they struggled to advise. They were very good at demonstrating what to do, but not necessarily very good at helping somebody to deconstruct a problem and, and learn it for themselves, which I think is a very different skill. So having seen pretty much all the highs and lows in my own career, I think that gave me empathy, which was a, you know, a really good uh, characteristic in, in that coaching relationship obviously the the captaincy of Leicestershire and and various teams had given me that insight into some strategies and and helping people think through some uh, issues that they they were dealing with but my early roles with certainly with Rajasthan alongside Shane Warne and and with the South African team and the Sri Lankan team uh, as they approached World Cups and things like that that was you know 
as much an assistant coach kind of role. You know, I was throwing balls and I was doing fielding drills with the players. So that gave me a real grounding in cricket psychology, if you like. But then roles across in other sports like football, working in Premier League soccer or with England rugby alongside Eddie Jones. I am not an expert in rugby or football, certainly not at that level. So I was very much in the back seats, listening, working alongside the coaching team, looking at how they wanted to get their messages across working to one-to-one with the players. And that was much more around asking questions, trying to understand the sort of psychological tangles that people were getting into, and then trying to simplify that and untangle it uh, so that they could think more clearly when they were under pressure. So I suppose the the demands of different sports and different business situations that I've been in have called for different skills. And, you know, equally, if I'm working with a, you know, a hedge fund manager or, a, you know, head of a car sales company, you know, the, the, I don't necessarily know the pharmaceutical terms or the or the sales language or whatever, but I'm trying to understand the basic principles of performance in their particular world and then replay it back to them in a really simple way so that they can focus on the most important things. Because I think sometimes when we get under pressure, we overcomplicate it. You know, we make things really tangled and, and we become very outcome focused about why am I not scoring hundreds or why can't I score a run or why am I dropping these catches or why can't I get any sales? And we become paralyzed by the fear of not achieving the outcome. And that then scrambles our brain and we forget to even kick it straight or we forget to even, you know, can't get into contact with our clients to try and have that discussion in the first place. So strange things happen when we're under pressure. And I guess it's just trying to understand, you know, the context of the people you're working in and then be able to go back to those first principles of what makes you a success and then uh, strip it back for them and, and go around to those brilliant basics. And often when we do that, that's transformation in itself when you're working with a, a, a sporting team the, the the cliched sort of psychology view is that you sit you lie on a sofa don't you and and you you kind of spill your heart out to the the psychologist who sits there taking notes but do you, do you make yourself available do you, do you have appointment times and meetings with with particular players or do you just wait for them to come to you with an issue again it's different in different contexts um you know as i say with the cricket side of things i was you know able to fuse those two sides of the sport together because I was coaching actually in the nets I could work with batsmen on their concentration routines between balls for example so the best time to do that is by throwing balls at A.B. de Villiers or Hashim Amla or somebody like that and then every six balls you'd wander down the net and look at the psychology of what was going on I was less bothered about their grip stance and backlift but I was more interested in how they were trying to dial up their concentration because you know the time between deliveries for me the low lights is as important as the highlights which is the bit we see, you know, the bowler runs in, the batsman whacks the ball and and that's the highlights. But I'm interested in as the batsman walks away to square leg, what are they doing? So so those are the kind of things that I was really attuned to and working on in cricket. Obviously, then you've got your sort of more informal time around, you know, bus trips, plane journeys, uh, you know, breakfast and meal times, um, you know, and sitting around the the training arena as somebody's getting physio or something like that. So those kind of natural, um, you know, touch points happen. Uh, Sometimes you have to create those as well. If you're trying to get somebody to reflect on a particular thing, maybe I remember in the IPL, um, you know, with flights every three days, it'd be great to be able to go to the airport, you know, ask somebody a question before they get on a flight and then say, look, I'll catch up with you at the other end before we get to the hotel and let's discuss what your thoughts are on this. And that gives them a couple of hours to, you know, reflect on a particular thing and, and you can use your time like that. But then in football, I work more alongside the manager 
sort of trying to help them to create that environment where the messages were getting across, where they were structuring the week and things like that. So that was more the case. And then with England rugby, a mixture, some group sessions uh, and also some one-to-ones. But some environments like it to be quite formalised and there are slots you know, made into the schedule. Um, And others just like the idea that there's somebody around that can support on that side of the game or is looking out for in training, almost like a a detective sort of looking out for the clues in what's going well and what's not going well. You know, who's frustrated, who's whispering in the corners and those kind of things. You're just trying to make sure that the machine is well oiled and that you spot any issues early so that they can be dealt with. And often with a, you know, incredibly high pressure environment and big coaching groups, it's, you know, the coach and the coaching team have got other things on the mind. So having somebody, you know, looking from a different perspective can can bring new views. Elvis Presley once said, we're caught in a trap. We can't get out, but we might be able to soon. Hopefully COVID-19 will be behind us and we can get back on the cricket pitch this summer. And you need to make it count. BlackRatCricket.com they have an original range, a rodent range, a little rat range. Bats made by cricketers for cricketers. Make 2021 count. BlackRatCricket.com Join the infestation. Are you a rival of mine, aren't you, in podcast land? Oh, I don't know if there's rivalry. I mean, I think there are millions. I think there's, you know, more people doing podcasts than not doing at the moment. So I, don't I, think, think, I think there's more podcasts than people, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I started mine about a year ago, February 2020, just before the pandemic, actually. And um yeah, it's, I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's been, uh, you know, over the last 10 years since I retired, Sporting Edge is all about, the podcast is called Inside the Mind of Champions. And, and it's about going and interviewing some of these world-class thinkers, whether it's a ballerina or a, you know, neuroscientist or an elite sports coach. So people like Shane Warne and Eddie Jones and Gareth Southgate. And then we've got Harvard professors and military leaders. And, and we basically try and understand what's going on in their mind and how they've got to be where they are in their careers. And then each week I sort of translate that into a series of practical steps for people to apply into their own sports coaching career or or business career. And, and, you know, there's been some incredible, um, you know, stories and and practical application of it. And it's brilliant, you know, to see. I think think we were number one in Lebanon last week and number two in India. So it's uh, bizarre the the places it gets to. I find that as well with mine. I I looked at the the charts the other day and I was number one in Vietnam. I've never been anywhere near (laughs) Vietnam, but it's, it's, it's fantastic. People listen, isn't it? Yeah, you'll you'll be offered champagne as you get off your flight there one day. It'll be a beautiful moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the the people you've had on your podcast. It, it's um it's fantastic, and we, and as individuals, we're always learning, aren't we? You, you never you never know everything. Give me an example of something Gareth Southgate, Viv Richards, Mo Farah, or somebody might have dropped into conversation that you thought you know light bulb moment. That's something I need to write down. Yeah, well, Viv Richards, I managed to work with him at the um, Melbourne Stars, so he was a you know childhood idol for me. You know what a hero. I think he was for everybody, to be fair. So so to get close to him and spend some time with him was fantastic. And then when I interviewed him towards the back end of that tournament, um, he came out with a couple of great lines. I mean, this is a guy that we thought was bulletproof. He'd got the, you know, incredible swagger and, you know, absolutely bulletproof confidence. And he was saying that 
he sees his mindset as the engine room of performance. And if his engine isn't running properly, the rest of it doesn't work, which I thought was a great analogy. And then he carried on that sort of metaphor and said that, you know, some days you've really got to adapt to the conditions. And again, we see him as this bombastic, you know, dominator on the pitch. But actually he said, it's almost like when you're driving your car, you've got to, some days you've got to stop at the red lights and wait for your turn to go. Otherwise there's going to be a big crash. Uh, And he says, be patient, you know, wait your turn. If they've got a new ball, and they're running in at you and it's swinging and you know the conditions are against you then just be patient wait at the red light because it will turn to orange and then green and that's when you can put your foot down and have some fun and I think it's a great analogy because you know many of us in our sport or our business we're we're impatient aren't we and I think high performance although it looks like this linear path is very much stop and start you know there are periods where opportunities just roll out in front of us and we skip from project to project pretty you know seamlessly and then other times when we're really scratching around thinking god what's going to happen next and and where's my next project or where's my next job or where's my next sale coming from or my next run and that can affect your confidence so I think that's what I learned from Viv I mean he, he was brilliant talking to the players but that's one specific thing in the podcast that he spoke about Gareth Southgate was interesting talking about um you know confidence and how he thinks there's almost three stages of confidence there's that youthful exuberance when you've got nothing to lose and you just come in wide-eyed and play naturally and probably dominate for a period and then you actually realize how complicated the game is and how many people are watching and and maybe um you know the press start to talk about you a bit and build you up or criticize you and you seem to lose your confidence and overcomplicate things and then maybe at the back end of your career you become a bit more you know relaxed and uh, you, you don't train so hard you sort of work in smartly rather than hard and um you know you get your confidence back because you realize how far you've come and all the you know knocks you've taken and, and how you deserve that that success so it's, that was another interesting one to think about confidence being in those three phases just the ability to listen to those elite performers and the best-selling authors and you know the way they frame things i think is often you know really inspirational that the language they use the way they tell stories around it because you know ultimately there's no secret to becoming a, a high performer i think we all like to think it's in people's you know fast twitch fibers or the dna but you know many of the world's top performers are just incredibly disciplined they've worked so hard you know they've gone way beyond those 10,000 hours that we hear about and it frustrates me sometimes if you hear a sports commentator saying oh you know this this swimmer is so talented you know and you sort of think well hang on she has been getting up at five o'clock in the morning for the last nine years and swimming further than most people drive to work you know this is this is hard work and tenacity and discipline and focus yes she's got a good physique and strong shoulders and she's tall and you know whatever else it might be that makes you a good swimmer but there are plenty of people that have that physiology but there are not many people that have that physiology and that work ethic and that tenacity that helps them to get to the top and stay at the top and I think that's the story that you know we don't like because it means that it's possible for us to be a high performer to some extent you know whereas it's much easier for us to sit back eating cakes and pies and saying oh you know he's got fast twitch muscle fibers and I don't that's why he's up there but I think you know so much of it is about you know our hard work and almost I often think about you know, maybe we're trying to compete against ourselves you know there's two versions of us each day one of us gets out of bed you know on the alarm clock jumps up maybe does a bit of exercise has a healthy breakfast attacks our priorities you know and you have a have a good day that sort of cascades from that point and then the other one 
you know, the duvet's beating you one nil before you even start <laughs> and uh, and your day sort of unravels from there. And, and I think that's more inspirational to me rather than looking at what we can learn from Mo Farah. I think those points are brilliant. But what I've learned through Sporting Edge and our podcast and members club is that, you know, they, they, their inspiration comes at the discipline, the daily discipline level of they just make really good choices very often. And those really good choices very often create great habits, which create great, you know, performance. And that's what leads to their success. So, yeah, I think um, we can all challenge ourselves in that respect. And and I guess that's where I'm lucky in my career that I'm surrounding myself with the ideas and stories and thoughts of all those people. And especially over the last 12 months through lockdown, it's really helped me to try and stay on track. You know, everyone's motivation wanes, you know, we goes up, up and down. And I think just trying to stay close to what you're capable of on a day-to-day basis is the way to look at it rather than feeling like you're falling a million miles behind some of these in- incredible athletes and you know people just because of what we see on Instagram, which isn't necessarily the real world. Indeed, indeed. I mean, it interested me what you said about Viv Richards there, because as you indicated, from the outside, he looked like somebody who was impenetrable, who who just had incredible self-belief and obvious um, ability as well. But just the fact that he actually thought about how his mind worked, I find quite interesting in itself, really, that you know, he, he obviously is a human being after all, and, and he's very conscious of all of that. Yeah, and there were a couple of other insights from his interview. One one was that in his test debut in India, he almost fell down the stairs because his legs had gone to jelly because he was that nervous, which I thought, again, was remarkable um, and shows that he's human. And, you know, the other thing was that he you know, what batsmen are like. When when we walk off the pitch, having played a silly shot, we tend to walk off and say, oh, it's swinging a lot or it's keeping low at that end or watch out for him, he's quite quick or whatever, just to almost, uh, it's quite cathartic to think that it wasn't our fault, which is pretty weak, really, but we've all done it. And what Viv did was he went and sat sort of on his own. And as he walked out, he wanted he wanted to judge the opposition on, with like a clean mind rather than being contaminated by what the last batsman said. So he always made sure that he was 20 or 30 metres away from the other batsman. So he'd either let them come through the gate or he'd do a wide berth and sort of swing round so they couldn't talk to him and tell him what was really going on. And again, I, I really like that idea of, you know, having the confidence to play it as you see it rather than getting somebody to tell you how they think it is and that affecting your thinking. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I had Dan Norcross, um, BBC TMS commentator on the podcast a few times, actually, but he did a an event with Sir Vivian and he described apparently at that event that you know, the, the walk-on, the bluster, the swagger, the, the chain around the neck and everything that we remember for him walking out to, to bat was to a large degree theatre. He kind of engineered that to give himself that presence. Yeah, again, he talks about that. And I think it's uh, sort of self-reinforcing that if you know that that's going to be part of your aura and you put the swagger on, then our brain, you know, if we if we slump our shoulders and, and crouch down, we feel in a lower mood. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I think it was Amy Cuddy, one of the psychologists from the US, uh, did some studies where if you stand, she, I think she called it power poses with like a Superman stance with your um, shoulders, uh, with your uh, feet shoulder width apart and hands on hips chest up you know you feel feel confident and strong and um so that that feedback loop of your body listens to your mind and your mind listens to your body you can obviously 
shortcut that if you start to sit and um, stand in a, in a dominant sort of or strong posture then your brain picks up on that and gives you more confidence whereas if you're timid and starting to shrink down then obviously the opposition see that you, you, your negative thoughts start to creep in and it's all part of the game so I think uh, for Vivier he knew that was a critical part both for his own thinking and what the opposition thought of it and the best performers seem to be slower and stiller at the crease or you know on the tennis court or whatever it might be because our natural reaction the way our brain is set up is to rush us and when we get nervous we want to get the performance out of the way because actually we don't want to be judged we want to get back to safety we want to get back to the pavilion we want to get away from that you know stage that we're about to speak at our conference on so we start to rush what we're saying in the first few lines or we become very jerky in the way we sort of prod and poke at the ball when we first go out and bat yet people who've got confidence they seem to have their shoulders back they're almost walking like a, a spaceman on the, the astronaut on the moon, you know, really slow strides, really strong, confident body language. And that pace tells you that they're in control. And, you know, that can either be put on to an extent. I'm not a massive believer in fake it till you make it, but there is a, there is something in it. There's a, a number of examples that I, I often see on Have I Got News For You and programmes like that, where politicians try and do exactly what you've just said. They walk out with that body language and they stand there in that power pose and they look vaguely ridiculous at times. Can everybody do that? Well, I think, you know, that what we've seen there with the politicians is they've heard the theory and executed yeah. it <laughs> I think you know for anyone listening you know if you were just to sit up in your chair or stand up you know and, and sort of stick your shoulders back and take a deep breath you you are bound to feel more uh, in control and confident it's just part of the way our brain and body are, are connected together the, the extent to which you do that you know you don't want to be a, a sort of comedy act like we've seen in some of the newspapers with the politicians as you say but there's definitely something in it so you know if we've got any keen cricketers listening you know when you first first go in just having that presence of mind to slow down and you know take your guard slowly and sort of move to square legs slowly and and just slow down those mannerisms will give you that feeling of control yourself but it was will also send a signal to the opposition that you're in control and nice and calm whereas you know you can imagine a, a young debutant walking in and just being rushed by the fielding team quickly scratching the mark probably taking the wrong guard in the first place looking up and the bowlers bold and and they're out straight away so somewhere between those two extremes we've got that ability to take control of the game and and the moment and, and slow down and you know settle in cricket's a game played with balls you've got to look after them in the field badges are furry creatures my friends at manscape.com help you make sure it's neat and tidy down there oh get rid of all that excess fur make sure that you're neat and tidy make sure everything's in the right order oh feeling all good now down in this set oh Manscaped.com Maximum skin safe performance Compact design Advanced engineering Ceramic blade Waterproof And it doesn't end there Show you care by caring for your pair Cleansers Revivers Preservers Simply go to Manscaped.com Quote the discount code BADGER You get 20% off You get free shipping And you get some seriously quality equipment Manscaped.com Get on there now You're talking about advising A.B. de Villiers 
bowling six balls and then go and have a chat with him uh, and obviously did that with a, a lot of different people there's all sorts of different things on there about shot selection and, and and when to up the ante and when to maybe bat within yourself that walk to square leg or whatever that the batsman does between balls you said that's very important what would you advise somebody to actually think about between balls in an over well it's interesting um, you know when people get under pressure most coaches say just clear your mind you know but when you've got a threat in the environment like a fast bowler or whatever it's you, you, you can't clear your mind it's like think you know don't think about a, a black and white stripy zebra you know you you can't not think about it because it, it's it's been mentioned and it's out there so i think what what we have to do is we have to point our brain to think about something useful so you can't think nothing you have to think something so i think there's probably two stages the first is that we almost see it like we've got two rooms going on the the place where we actually play our shots is our instinct room and we're nice and calm in there and not a lot of thoughts going on but i'll come back to that in a second but when we step away to square leg between balls that's where we're thinking okay we need 50 to win this guy's bowling back of a length and um, there's no deep square leg if it comes in short then I've got my pull shot or I've got my cut shot or, or whatever or I'm going to come down the wicket and try and get it over mid on and mid off whatever so we've got that sort of strategic thinking that's based on the tempo of the game now that might be you're batting for a draw and you you're not going to play any reverse sweeps or whatever it might be so so that might be about being really calm and just reinforcing that there's plenty of time and you're counting the number of balls down during that period to keep your brain nice and nice and calm but it's about setting yourself up for the level of intent and and aggression that you need and just reinforcing any technical points so make sure you're moving your feet you know or, or keep your head up as stand tall and, and hit the ball straight you know those kind of cues that you might use and then the key thing is then to stop thinking about those things and move into this more instinctive room now again under pressure these things tend not to uh, be as natural so that's why they they need training within the environment and and top players would even do this between throwdowns for example so it may be that you sort of count your feet into your stance so you can imagine you've taken a pace or pace and a half away to square leg and then you might count your feet in because now really we've finished all that thinking time about what you're going to do what the aggression is, how many runs left, you know, how long till lunch, whatever that that sort of strategic thinking is. So then we might sort of count. So we need now to fill our brain with things that are useful to us, like blockers. So we might say one, two, as our feet sort of get back into our stance and we tap the floor. But as we tap the floor, we say clear. So that is a, is a signal that every time in our routine, and this is the key thing, that every ball, our thinking routine is the same, but it's linked to our mannerisms. And our mannerisms are exactly the same every ball. You know, we move our thigh pad, we step one foot, then the other foot. So that's the one, the two, and then we tap the bat on the floor and we say clear. And it's at that point we take a deep breath in and we look up at the bowler at the back of his mark or her mark. And then we might have a, you know, a, a series of thoughts or we might be concentrating on our breathing. You know, there might be a cue word or something like that. But but that is giving our brain a little puzzle to think about. And often breathing is a very good one. Long, slow breathing patterns because it gives our brain something to focus on rather than is this one is this going to hit me in the face and be a bouncer you know that's the kind of question our brain is asking so if all we're thinking about is how calm can I keep my breath during this period then those kind of things allow us then to play instinctively because if you've been playing for a, a decent period of time your body knows how to react when the ball pops out the biggest challenge we've got is if we start to premeditate 
where that ball's going to be. And we're already hanging back on our stumps before the ball's bowled. Because what then happens is instead of having, you know, the full one second to or two seconds, whatever it is, to face that delivery, that timeline, we've actually gone right back on our stumps as the ball's released, we then realise it takes us a third of that timeline to realise that the ball isn't short, it's actually full, and it's going to get us LB if we're not careful. And that's when from we've got 60% of the time left and we're still moving forward towards that ball to try and recorrect what we had. So in effect, our negative thinking or our predictive concern wasted 40% of the timeline and now we look rushed. Hmm. So, so the the players that are able to play fast bowling and and look as if they've got time, they don't expand time, of course, but they use the whole timeline. They react to what comes out of the hand. They're not premeditating what's going to come out of the hand. So, so that's that's probably one thing that I've learned. Obviously, that's different if you want to premeditate the shot. So, if you want to play a scoop shot or a reverse sweep or whatever it might be, that's different. What I'm talking about here is with playing with instinct against somebody, a fast bowler that normally you'd be anxious and worried oh they've just shouted at me and moved square leg back therefore it's definitely going to be short and my brain is trying to keep me safe so I've moved back in my stumps and actually that's exactly what the bowler wanted it's interesting what you say about the tapping and saying clear I I was watching um, Joe Root in obviously over the last few weeks um, playing the test matches and he tends to come back to the crease he gets in into position and then he taps his bat three times it goes tick 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 and then he pauses raises it up a bit and then there's one final kind of like full stop at the end of that process do you, do you think that's deliberate and that's the part of that process that you're talking about or is that just habit that he's got into well I, I think I think there's probably two things first of all it's definitely a habit and part of the rhythm that you get into so I'd always recommend that when somebody's batting well they get somebody to film them because those little ticks and mannerisms and and the way your foot plays goes and you you know your trigger movements and things if you can capture that when you're doing well that's absolutely great so I'd love to think that Joe Root has got you know almost like a you know a video file of those kind of innings that he played in Sri Lanka and India because that timing is part of his best game certainly in the subcontinent I mean you may have a different you know footwork in South Africa or Australia based on quicker bouncier pitches where you you, you know you're pressing and, and moving off the back foot but certainly the physical habits and mannerisms of that routine are really really important to the timing of your back lift and and swing through so so those are critical what I'm saying is that we need to pair psychological, patterns with those physical patterns because that then becomes bulletproof because if we if we've got those nicely balanced physical movements at the same time that we've got a clear you know zen like mind then that is the perfect combination. Our footwork patterns could be the same as they were last game, but if we're worried about what the bowler's going to bowl and we're trying to premeditate, then we're compromised by that. So what I'm saying is we've got to use our psychological routine and pair it to what we do physically. Now, again, this is going to sound quite complicated. So just, just to explain what how I've coached this in the past is I would watch somebody in the nets and I would watch them in a match and I would look for those mannerisms. So for example, with Joe Root, I hadn't noticed the three taps, but so you, what you might do is you might just pair three words to those three taps. So that means that you can't think two things at the t- same time. So what you're saying is that he, you noticed he tapped three times. So he could be tapping three times and thinking, I hope this one doesn't keep low. And that's not great. So no. what I would be saying is, 
use the three taps, but every time you tap, say, watch the ball. And that what that does is it guarantees that his mind is on the thing that he does want to do. That's just an example of the three taps. But that's why I say the word clear as you tap hard into your crease is usually quite a good one because it signals the end of the thinking that you were doing between balls and the time to now focus on your breathing or being instinctive so that you're not trying to premeditate what the bowl is going to bowl. Well, if you're listening to this routine, watch the ball and then when that final one clear and then you're away. Jeremy, I could keep you for hours. I could honestly keep you because I'm absolutely fascinated by this kind of stuff. But you, you played um, 10 ODIs, two T20 internationals for England. So you got to the very, very highest level. You obviously know your stuff now. When was it in your career that you actually thought about the mental side of it? If, if you could go back and kind of heal yourself in the early parts, maybe, what would you tell yourself? Whew, that's a good one. How long have you got? Um, <laughs> I think for me... It's funny because I started as a, a captain in the England under-15s team. Um, I signed pro at 16 at North Hunts. So I was probably seen as, you know, one of those early potentials to go on and play first-class cricket or, or even for England. It never really came into my mind that I'd get a chance to play for England. North Hunts was like an apprenticeship. I don't think I played to my ability there. The team was... We had lots of fun, but we didn't win a lot of trophies, but there was a lot of talent there. And then I went to Gloucester and it was like a machine. It was a team of underdogs, Jack Russell, Mark Elaine, uh, Ian Harvey, the Australian, Kim Barnett. You know, that that team won everything in three years or something like that. We had four back-to-back Lords finals that we won. It was incredible. So I, I started to certainly work harder, be more disciplined, but more importantly, back myself, actually. And and I had a couple of really good seasons there. And that coincided with an opportunity that was a sort of gap between Robert Croft and Ashley Giles in that England side. So I think some of it's down to luck and and timing as well. But I think I believed that negative voice in my head too much, I have to say. And that's why I'm passionate about trying to help people in sport and business now, because, you know, there's a game I played for England in front of 120,000 people in India, Eden Garden. Gardens, you know, the run rate was escalating. I'd just never seen anything like it. Now, I'd played in Lords finals and I'd won games for Gloucester and handled pressure reasonably well in front of 10, 15, even 20 odd thousand people. But, you know, to go into that game with Sachin and all those massive guns on the opposition and that crowd, I actually bowled okay. But when it got to the batting, it just seemed like it was just too much. Now, if I'd have been beaten by, if I was fully concentrating and I'd been beaten by a Harbhajan Singh Dusra, I don't think I'd have any problems with it, but I actually just didn't back myself. And my voice, the voice in my head was louder than any of the 120,000 people in the stadium. And it was saying, you're not good enough. You're not going to win it from here. And I just played the most ridiculous shot of my career, you know, and walked off getting pelted with onion barges thinking, God, what, what, what was that? You know, all the local school kids shouting and throwing pens and stuff at me as I, as I walked past. And it was at that moment, really, that I thought, well, hang on a minute. That wasn't even, it was like an out of body experience. The pressure, my body was just buzzing. And, and I felt sort of, it wasn't me playing it. So I think what I've learned from the master's degree and, and it, the sort of, the, the sort of full circle was complete. I'd done my master's degree. Uh, we were playing in the 2020 final against Surrey. 
And uh, again, the run rate was building up. We were at Edge Baston. It was a really great day, tense day, but obviously you're desperate to win this in the last over. I was batting at the end. And I just remember thinking, this is the time to switch off. Now, bizarrely, I was thinking about these breathing routines and all this sort of stuff. So I'd got Azam mood running in. I think we needed four to win off the last over. I should have been more nervous than I'd ever been really in this game, but I was actually more composed and more calm than I'd ever been. And as the bowler ran up, I was thinking about my breathing. Now that just sounds really weird, I know. But as the ball came down, I played one of the best shots I've ever played, sort of hit the ball through mid-wicket before and then ran off and we, you know, had a massive party, you know, in the dressing room. And, And that moment for me was that's the difference. You know, I wasn't thinking about winning. Of course, I was desperate to win. But as the bowler was running up, I was just playing it as I saw it. Whereas in India, you know, seven or eight years or five or six years before, I was so bothered about what the media might say about me tomorrow and that they were going to say I wasn't good enough tomorrow and what everyone, all my teammates were going to think about me after the game, after I'd failed, that I forgot to watch the ball that was right in front of me there and then. Yeah. When you hear the um, players interviewed now, they, they talk about ignoring the noise don't they and that's what you, that's what you're talking about there isn't it the noise from the media and the surrounding bits that you can't really do anything about yeah that's absolutely right but I think we've all got that you know if we look at what's happened over the course of the pandemic you know are we going to lose our jobs when's the recovery going to happen you know when's the immunization rollout going to take place you know when are the restrictions going to lift it's all noise and external factors that actually we can't do anything about and at the same time if we're not careful we lose our own well-being we lose our own positive state about what we can do today that's going to make a difference. So I often think about that sense of when I'm too desperate to win, we all want to win in whatever type of life we've got. I think about, okay, well, if I want to win, if this is really important, if this conference speech or if this sales pitch or whatever is really important, I want to win it. Let me ask myself, what's important now? So I go to that W-I-N, but translate it into what's important now in this moment. What can I do in the next minute, the next 20 minutes, the next hour, the next day? that's going to make me move closer towards what I want rather than being so worried about what's going on out there and the threat of failing that I, as I say, forget to watch the ball or or forget to prepare for my speech or whatever it might be. So those are some of the lessons that I've learned. I think, you know, the high performers that I get most inspired from are people who just go and do the basics when things are tough. You know, our, our instinct is to stay safe and, and not put our hand up, not to go and do that thing. But I think when we can pair that ambition with the courage just to keep walking through those challenging moments and trying to stay calm because we know we're going to learn something from it. I think that's the bit for me that that really stands out. You were talking about working with the players in, inside a squad. I, I guess nowadays, um, and quite rightly, mental health is obviously forefront, um, particularly with bio bubbles in the, in the current COVID world. How good would you be at actually being able to see if somebody's suffering mentally? Or is that something that would be invisible unless somebody told you? Well, I think I think, you know, one thing I would say about sports psychology is that I think it's the next frontier. I think we've done, um, you know, we had a decade of fitness uh, where everyone was flying in military trainers or Australian sports scientists. That's part of sport now. Then we had a decade of analytics. We've got things like Hawkeye. We've got things like Prozone measuring where a footballer is at any split second. We've got heart rates. We've got movement patterns. And then the final thing that we can't measure is what's going on inside somebody's head. So I think the psychology of sport and the mind mindset in sport is the next frontier without a doubt. So then we start to move into this really intense environment of the 
pandemic sort of biosecure bubbles, as you say. My view is that in the next five to 10 years, we will start to see different types of mental support, like we are seeing lots of different types of physical support in high performance. So if I think about a rugby team, for example, you might have two masseurs, a doctor, two physios, uh, you might have a strength and conditioning coach, an assistant, you might have a a sort of a rehab injury specialist, Uh, you've got sort of six or seven physical therapists that are all based around optimizing the performance of the athletes. I think in sports psychology, we will start to get four or five different types of of people and specialities within these environments. So for example, you might have a high performance skill specialist, somebody who's like a a kicking specialist who can help the players to, to kick at goal or a batting or bowling specialist in psychology. Then you might have a a coaching psychologist who's excellent with the coaches about trying to look at the language and the way they set up coaching situations to make sure that learning takes place effectively. And then we might have more of a clinical psychology type element or or a psychiatrist in, in that kind of environment that's looking for mental health issues. And that physical skill set that is supported will now be backed up by the mental skill set because there's no doubt, and hopefully the pandemic moves away, there's no doubt that this period has been the most psychologically challenging for all the athletes. I mean, it's been challenging for everybody sitting at home, you know, even watching it on the TV. So imagine having things shoved up your nose four times a day, you know, every airport you go to, it looks like some kind of nuclear reactor has gone off and, and you, you're worried about every person that either picks up the ball in the crowd or, you know, puts fresh bowls out in the breakfast room. You know, that level of concern and uncertainty, as well as the dislocation of being away from your family and loved ones, is adding strain. So ironically, I think the most relaxing place to be on an international tour is now on the pitch, where mm-hmm. it used to be that, you know, we'd go on tour, have some fun, go and see the local sites, go out to the local tourist attractions. And that was nice down time but then the hard work was on the pitch i think the biosecure bubbles will definitely if they carry on will shorten tours we'll see more of this rotation uh, but i think if they do move away which we really hope they will as the pandemic eases i think i'd like to see more psychological support in our high performance environments and as i say that could come from four or five different kinds of disciplines with people picking up sort of the psychology of rehab and things like that as a specialist kind of area jeremy i've never been averse to really giving the ecb a knocking if i think they deserve it but i think on this bio bubbles and and mental health and getting ahead of the game and resting players and rotating squads and things i think they're doing a fantastic job you say that publicly and it's fine when england are winning in sri lanka and winning the first test in india everybody's saying yeah yeah it's working well as soon as you lose three test matches and on the bounce in India they're saying rest and rotation that's disgraceful you get Jeffrey Boycott in the in the Telegraph writing that it's it's an absolute disgrace that they're thinking about doing it in the ashes if the Covid world continues that far you, you can't have it both ways can you you've got to look after after the players and you, you just mentioned there I thought the same that you know playing on the pitch must be such an outlet for people after being stuck in hotel rooms and being stuck in the inside in in artificial environments. I've been thinking about the the kind of squad members and the reserves that are out there with England. They don't get that release of actually going out there and competing, do they? They obviously play in the nets and stuff, but it's far, far more limited for them. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I had a period playing for England and going on various tours and there was a period I got injured in India um, and then we went straight on to New Zealand to play in that tournament. And um, 
I remember thinking it was now sort of two, three weeks since I played cricket and, and I was going to go out and, you know, bowl against Fleming and Nathan Astle and all those kind of guys. And I was actually more nervous then than I was, you know, bowling at Sachin and, and Verinda Sehwag in India because I felt like I was in the game. I was in the in the tournament. So I think sometimes we underestimate the challenge it is to come off the bench and, and start. You know, if you've had a whole mm. month where you've not played yet, it, it's really, really hard to step up to that level of intensity. Now, you know, everyone at home will say, oh, you know, well, they're international cricketers that get paid well. But you've got to appreciate that when, when I think about international sport, when I was growing up, I used to think, oh, that must be amazing. You know, you're, you're physically fit, you're confident, you're in the best form of your life. And, and it must feel brilliant to be on that stage like that. Well, my experience was that when I got picked for England, I actually had my ankle in plaster uh, because I'd slid into some advertising boards and it was touch and go whether I'd make it. My first uh, one day international, my ankle was strapped up like a mummy to try and get me through the game. And it was agony afterwards. And we had another game three days later. So you sort of, you know, the reality of touring and playing and, and almost being exposed in your technique. Remember, the opposition don't want you to do well. So they're doing all the analysis. And I think what people don't appreciate is often the world's best players are adapting their techniques as they go. So one of the reserve players might be, for example, learning a tech, new technique or a new bowling action or trying to get closer to the stumps or trying to change their backlift or their trigger movements. So you, you have to use that time while you're not playing to put the work in to be, you know, improve your game, almost like you're in beta mode, trying to get up to your next level of performance. But then, of course, you get thrown into the match and you haven't really tested it in any county cricket or anything. And now you're playing against the world's best bowlers with this new technique. And that's the reality for an international cricketer. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, say it's anything other than amazing because it absolutely is. But it's not it's not as straightforward that everyone is confident on top of the game and that it's just a matter of traveling the world with all your mates because it's much, much harder than that. And that's why the guys deserve great credit when they survive and, and thrive in that kind of environment and, and stay at the top of the sort of rankings for, for a long period of time, which somebody like Joe Root is, is doing. The other thing I thought, I've been thinking over the last few weeks with the bio bubbles and, and people saying, oh, you know, stop this rest and rotation, is that somebody like Joss Butler, when he meets his future wife and they're, they start uh, dating and they talk about their future plans and everything. She doesn't buy into not seeing him for six months, does she? And the child that they bring into the world not seeing him for six months. There's, you know, family is important too. Getting that work-life balance is important for the mental health as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, many people's jobs take them away for periods of time. I, I had the same. My my wife's from South Africa, so she moved over to uh, Bristol to, to come and live with me in, in Bristol. And then I got picked for England and, you know, went on tour for two months. So it's, uh, you know, it is a challenge but it is part of the territory and I think was it literally that quick was it high bye I'm off now <laughs> it was pretty quick she'll yeah. tell you much more graphically how many hours it was but it, it wasn't it wasn't long <laughs> I told her not to take it personally but you know I had been dreaming of this for years get playing for England and so uh, so yeah I think it's it's part of the territory but but obviously the normal situation now is that that the international cricket boards allow the families and the the wives 
wives and the girlfriends to, to come and spend time with the players while they're traveling. And that's hopefully something that we can get back to that more normal rhythm. But I think in the short term, you know, we've just got to balance our resources and make sure that over the next year, we've got as many players available as often as we can. And then that rotation policy will be critical. You know, the problem is that you mentioned that we're desperate to win every game and we very rarely are prepared to sort of soften that or, or you know, weaken the side to, to get longevity. I saw the same tension in Premier League football where there might be a player that's trying to come back from injury. The manager is desperate not to be relegated and wants this player to be back as soon as possible. But if they come in and play, they might re-tear the hamstring because it's a bit early and the physios and doctors are saying no he needs another week and the manager's like I might not have another week let's get him on the pitch and it's that tension between winning this week and keeping a high performance culture that's going to go on for years and years and and that's the challenge that this current pandemic has has really brought into focus. Jeremy I'm really enjoying talking to you I do do apologise for keeping you longer than I said I've got one more question I've always found myself that I'm actually quite good at looking at other people and working them out and trying to quite good at giving advice to people when it comes to actually doing myself I'm terrible is that quite common um well I think we're often quite rational and objective with how to solve problems but when we look into our own minds there's all the emotion and bias and baggage and insecurities that tangle around it and that's as I mentioned before sometimes why we need a a coach to be objective and, and pull out what we're saying dust it down put it into two or three piles and say right which one are we going to tackle first Whereas to us, it looks like a complete, you know, dust storm that we can't see through it. So I think uh, clarity is the key there. Because there's so many things involved in this and in the human brain, isn't there? Imposter syndrome, am I good enough in sport? Um, And and that's before you even get to actually um, understand yourself that you are maybe good enough and you you do deserve a a chance in that side. It's it's probably difficult to unpack it, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have imposter syndrome. A lot of people have that sort of insecurity. But again, there's, there's probably two things to go back to. First of all, what are my core strengths? What are my super strengths? What am I great at? You know, what can I really do under pressure? And how can I make sure that I focus most of my time around those strengths? So if that's in a business environment, you know, what is my, what do I bring to this team? And if it's in the cricketing context, it's like, what are my best shots under pressure? You know, there's no point me trying to reverse sweep if I've never done it. You know, maybe my, uh, you know, picking the ball up over the leg side is my get out of jail shot. So going to your strengths is really important. And then the second thing, is is look back in your own timeline of, of where you've been successful in the past. And again, that's something that we don't often do. We tend to just look forward at the next game and then worry again. But, um, you know, we've all achieved things in the past to whatever level. And when we go back to those and say, right, what was I doing at that time when I was scoring runs? Or what was I doing at that time when I was doing really well in my schoolwork or, or my business or whatever it might be? And often there's patterns in there that we can go back to and, uh, you know, start to reconnect with those great moments. Your podcast, The Mind of Champions, is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You've also got a membership service, haven't you? Would you like to tell people what that's about so they can get involved in that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Sporting Edge has been going for, you know, 15 years or so. And over the last 10 years, I've been flying around the world and filming all those great leaders and coaches and neuroscientists and sleep experts and business strategists, whatever it might be. So all of those videos are in our members club. So every week I give a sort of an inspirational micro lesson where I take one of the insights from somebody like Viv Richards or a Harvard professor and say, this is the, the tip high performance strategy for this week. And we all debate that all the sort of membership groups 
to see how they can use that in their own context. And then we also have some live events with some great uh, coaches and, um, you know, world-class thinkers that we get together and have those sort of virtual Zoom calls as well. So it's really around trying to learn from the best. Uh, the video library is on demand, so you can go to it if you need a difficult conversation or you want to understand uh, resilience better than all of that content is there on your phone. Uh, and they become like your board advisors. You know, you've got the world's best coaches and Eddie Jones, people like that motivating you. So so yeah, it's a, it's a really innovative solution. And uh, it's it's been a real privilege to see hundreds of people around the world, whether it's entrepreneurs or sports coaches using it. So um, yeah. Thanks very much. That's all all on sportingedge.com and that's our members club. Your podcast has another listener, or it will have, as soon as I uh, finish this Zoom call with you. So I'm, I'm actually really quite interested in listening to that Viv Richards uh, edition. So uh, you'll get another number on your numbers. I wish you all the best with that in the future. And I have really enjoyed this chat. I, I, it is a subject that really does interest me and I've been uh, very thankful for you to coming on today as a guest. No problem, James. Good luck and good luck to everyone listening. Podcast Network.